informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA on this holiday weekend. Hoping you're having a great holiday, a safe one as well. Thank you for letting us be part of your day. Coming up on our program, we'll get reaction to the Supreme Court ruling recently on RFS waivers. But first, reaction to the big June 30th USDA crop report looking at acres and stocks. I asked Arlen Suderman, chief commodities economist for StoneX, if he was surprised at the numbers. I was surprised. This was a year when we had plenty of incentive to uh, plant fence row to fence row. We expected that we would push combined corn and soybean acreage closer to 183, maybe even 184 million acres, uh, which would be a new high. But yet we stuck at 180.2 million for the two combined. Corn acres came in just pretty much almost exactly what I expected all the way back to last March. I stuck with that estimate for the June uh, report. But the soybeans was really a surprise. It didn't even grow from the March estimate. It shrank a little bit from the March estimate. Some of that probably because of the late development of the wheat crop in the southern Midwest and some of the double cropping areas. Um, but uh, frankly, when you look at the numbers in the breakdown state by state from USDA, some of the numbers are a little mystifying uh, on where they come up with, but they are the numbers they are. This is what we will trade going forward uh, until we see certified acreage from USDA that might change things. This is what we're going to go through the summer with. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the the actual number might change but going off of this number and i've seen this question posed i think it's a good question if if this year with prices as they were at planning time if this year we didn't see an explosion in soybean acres what would it take yeah i think that's a legitimate question to ask uh, it, it defies logic a little bit because farmers did have the incentive to do it. Uh, you can't ask for much more incentive, and that incentive was coming during planting season uh, as well. So that was plenty of opportunity. It was a relatively dry planting time for them to go in, granted maybe too dry in the northern plains, um, but even there, North Dakota was an interesting uh, scenario where we saw uh, USDA reported an increase from the March report for corn acres, soybean acres, and wheat acres at a time when they were frankly too dry. And that's where we expected maybe that we wouldn't see some acres planted, um, but they increased acreage of all three following the March report. All right, so acres, that's one thing. But with the weather challenges we've had throughout the, this growing season so far, what are your thoughts on production, actual yield? Well, that's what the total focus becomes now. Yes, these numbers will be put into the balance sheets on July 12th, and so we'll see adjustments there. But it's really going to come down to weather now over the next 30 to 60 days. And we're set up with a have and have nots across the, uh, the major crop growing areas. 
Uh, southern and eastern areas have good moisture, a few dry pockets for the most part good moisture, some places excessive moisture where we're going to see some denitrification, some, some problems with some yellow corn, etc. It's going to be problems some flooded out fields. Um, but overall going to expect some above trend yields in the southern and eastern part of the belt. Northwestern areas, yes, we have some spots where the crops still look good where they happen to get some convective storms. Uh, but overall, the region sees some very dry soils. We have not seen the, the drought breaking relief that we need. The growing season has to go basically perfect from here on out. With and Depending on temperatures over the period, an inch and a half to two inches of rain per week over the next eight to ten weeks. And the outlook doesn't look like that's going to happen. So we're set up for below trend yields in that area. So how do the two balance out? Iowa's going to be kind of the dividing line. Which way do the rains from this point forward and the heat, how much of Iowa do they claim or not claim? That's going to pivot how much of an influence goes toward the above trend to below trend. But nonetheless, we're still probably leaning more toward the below trend. My corn model right now is at 176.4 bushels per acre, trending lower kind of on a weekly basis. I like that. I think that's a good snapshot. I know people in the northwestern belt are saying, you're way too high. People in the east are saying, you're way too low. It's backyarditis type of a thing. But when you look at the belt as a whole and the snapshot, assuming normal weather, which I know is, is a risky thing to do, I think that's a good take right now. For soybeans, it's 50.3 bushels per acre. But there again, soybeans can do a lot in, in August as long as you have the basic plant there. Um, but uh, the forecast is what's concerning. We're going to warm up and dry out uh, the, North, the North Dakota, South Dakota, parts of Minnesota in the days ahead, starting probably Saturday, Sunday, somewhere in there. Uh, and we're going to go to hot period. That heat's going to ebb and flow. It's not going to be maybe as intense as what it's been in the Pacific Northwest. But it's going to make things tough. We have some opportunities for some convective storms um, to develop in this dry area of the belt in the weeks ahead. Um, but the, those are the type where you're lucky if you get them. A few miles away, you don't get anything. So it's not going to solve our national problem of production. So if we get a national average corn yield below 174, we have to pick up the pace of rationing. I might mention, I'm going to break it here, we just got our Brazil team's production estimate for corn in, and uh, we're just ready to go public with it now. 87.93 million metric tons total corn production. That's below their estimate of 89.68 million metric tons last month. And that doesn't include all of the frost damage from this week either. So a short crop in Brazil means more export business in the new marketing year for us makes it essential that we get at least 174 to 175 bushel yield, and that risk is, is very great right now. Breaking news here on AOA. We like that. Thank you. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with StoneX. All right, so you mentioned earlier, when we look at the weather right now, haves and have-nots, and, and so as this plays out, I guess the question is, do the haves have enough of a crop to over... Uh, overcome the loss of the have-nots, right, where the production's going to be down. 
Yesterday's numbers mean we have to ration demand for soybeans over the coming year, even if we don't get a short crop this year. So on corn, we're very borderline of having to do that, and with soybeans, we, we need to. So things are tight. If you're an end user, you have to be worried more about higher prices. If you're a producer, you're feeling pretty smug right now, uh, not too worried about the market breaking on you, but uh, you're hoping for higher prices for additional pricing opportunities. But I think we're going to see this market well supported in here to get back up near where we were, whatever. And then it's going to be daily weather models. Thanks, as always, for the perspective. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. A lot more to dig through here and get reaction to. Lots to talk about with these markets and with that report. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, several members of Congress are calling upon the Biden administration and uh, Secretary Vilsack to appeal that recent federal district court ruling that um, basically would slow down line speeds at packing plants. Let's talk about that with Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. Steve, good to talk with you. You've talked before about how that court ruling could be very costly to pork producers. It can be, Mike. Um, you know, it's one of those, it's very frustrating because um, the producers aren't party to the situation between this judge and and the courts and uh, the injunction that she re- issued on behalf uh, in response to a suit from the uh, United uh, Food and Commercial Workers Union. And so it's up to USDA to defend their rule. And they haven't indicated they're going to do that yet. So it's quite uh, quite frustrating. You know, this thing's going to take about 2.5% of our our uh, slaughter capacity out beginning next week, or late next week. And uh, that really comes into play in the fourth quarter uh, when we have, you know, the lion's share pigs come to, uh, you know, on a quarterly basis, come to, to market in the fourth quarter. And so it could really uh, make things tight again in the fourth quarter and again, the, the problem on it is that it's quite frustrating. And, and the decision by the judge in Minnesota is not about, uh, not, not directly about the safety of workers. It's about USDA not following the proper procedures and promulgating the final rule. You, uh, you get whacked on a technicality and you really don't say anything, have any say in the thing. That's, that's pretty frustrating. So we wait to see what USDA's response will be to this call again for them to appeal the decision. Meanwhile, there's been a lot of focus, a lot of discussion about uh, concerning, uh, concerning cattle markets and efforts to increase uh, packer space, uh, uh, opening up new plants and more ind- uh, grants for independent plants to uh, get going. Uh, how does this impact the, the pork industry, Steve, and what's the situation there? Well, we're in pretty good shape on capacity now. Now, we were going to be tight this fall. The Hudson Picture report yesterday indicates we might be in a little better shape in the fourth quarter than we thought. 
But still, I mean, uh, any time you have a growing industry, you're going to run into packing capacity at some point, unless you're adding packing capacity to go. You know, we had an important announcement there last week when Whole Stone Foods announced that they had purchased property in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to build a new plant. Uh, that plant, as right now, according to the announcement, wouldn't be up and operational until 2025. But you got to plan these things way ahead of time. And so that's a positive for us. Um, yeah, you know, the government is going to try to throw some things. They, they have this idea that small plants are the answer. I'm afraid, uh, I'm really afraid that's not the case because there is a reason we have big packing plants, and that's called economies of scale. And so unless you do something to add value to that product on the other side to make up for your diseconomies of scale, you may not be competitive. But the packing, uh, the, the, the beef industry is in a, a, a pickle here because, they don't have enough capacity. They've, re, you know, the, the cow herd has, has responded over the last three or four years. And in their case, it's such a long, long time period. Now we're cutting back cows. Two years from now, we probably won't have enough cattle to support the capacity that's out there. And you'll have excess capacity. And so um, it's a tough thing for them because they can't react very quickly to this. You know, this whole situation of tight capacity now it goes all the way back to the droughts of 2011 and 12 when we cut cattle numbers uh, drastically and closed some flat packing plants because they didn't have enough cattle to run them. So um, it's a tough situation for the beef business. We were in that same shape the fall of 2016, and the problem is is when you get in a tight capacity situation, uh, the leverage goes to the packer, their margins are really good, and they have no incentive to build another plant because it just means lower margins. And so beef is in that position now. I, I don't know what the best answer to it is. I'm afraid that a whole bunch of small plants, or even several small plants, probably isn't the answer because I do know there's substantial economies of scale here. All right, Steve, we've uh, seen some ups and downs in the hog market. Uh, what do you, what's your outlook? Well, I think we had a come-back-to-reality thing on the futures market the last two or three weeks. I think it was pretty overbought. Uh, we've had a situation here where we didn't have enough spot market hogs to support uh, the needs of packers from a product standpoint against a very strong demand-driven uh, wholesale market. And they went out and chased some hogs, and that's the reason we've got hogs way above what the cutout value, at least the spot market hogs, above the cutout value right now. And we're going we're gonna to rectify that over time. But I still think hog prices are going to be good. And yesterday's report tells me that the fourth quarter probably a little better than what we thought. In fact, I've still got hog prices around 90 for the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, th- that, that's a really good hog price. Uh, it might not be a really good hog price in the face of $6 or six fifty corn or whatever, which is still possible in this situation. I'm in Springfield, Illinois today. we got lots of rain here last night. And so... But northern Iowa, southern Minnesota has not. And so the cost situation is uh, tenuous at best uh, on this crop and whether we can get the kind of yield we need to keep these, these costs in line. The saving grace to some degree is a really strong soybean oil market uh, that has made uh, soybean meal uh, much more affordable than it was, otherwise would have been. So uh, I think there's, uh, you know, I think we're still going to have a good year this year. Uh, next year could be a good year, depending on what the size of this crop is. And I wanted to get your thoughts again, with so much focus on the cattle market situation right now, and and you have uh, uh, Congress looking into it and asking questions. 
and seems to be a struggle for consensus on uh, on the situation and what to do about it. What are your thoughts, Steve, as an economist, about bringing the government in to try to address markets? Well, um, I, you know, I, I always tell people um, I'm a member of no organized political party. I am a Republican. Um, and key on the organized there. Um, and so I, I, I think we're better off when we have the least government involvement that we, than, than we can. Now, with that being said, you have to have the government there to set the basic rules of play. And we've done that in the past, uh, and we've done that uh, effectively, I think. The situation in the cattle markets, though, again, is really a very tight packing supply, packing capacity relative to the supply of market-ready cattle. And, you know, there are people who say, well, we need to, there's too much concentration. I don't think concentration has anything to do with it. I think you can take those plants and put them in different companies' hands and you'll have the same thing because you still don't have any more capacity. So this is a situation that doesn't fit our economic models that, uh, you know, the regulators and I learned about in, in economics school in that it's constrained. It has a constraint thrown in it that we really haven't dealt with in the past. And it's, it's, it's a problem. And, and so how do, you, how do you encourage capacity without encouraging too much capacity, which means that the packing community can't make money? Um, I, I think one of the, the answers here is, and I, I've been a proponent of this for a while, Mike, is let's get, a, let's get the packers and the producers on the same side of the market. Uh, let's quit fighting over the value of the cutout value, and let's split it in an equitable way all the time and, and, and to me, that makes a lot of sense. Now, finding how to do that equitably might be a very difficult thing. And the problem is it's going to be really hard to do that on an individual company basis, which our antitrust laws require markets to do. So uh, I believe we're going to have to have some new paradigms about the way we approach this. And I've been a proponent for on the hard market. Let's go to the cutout value and 88% of the cutout value goes to the producer, and 12% plus the drop goes to the packer. And then the packer's job is to add value to that product on the other side to try to make a better profit. That makes a lot of sense to me. But again, how do you get there without colluding and violating the antitrust laws? I think that's a, that's a real challenge. Wow, if I'd have known you were so close to me, you're only 30 miles away. We could have just hooked up, done this uh, face-to-face. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Well, I didn't, I didn't realize you were that close. I thought we would have set that up. So, yeah. Yeah, good, good to talk with you, Steve. Safe travels. Thanks a lot. You bet. Have a good day. Bye. Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. Interesting thoughts there on the situation with the, the markets and packing plants. And, yeah, when you start thinking about how long it takes to build a plant, the, the resources it takes to build a plant, and what's a tight situation now on, on capacity, uh, it might be a completely different one by the time you get the plant open. So there's a lot of factors in all of this and uh, interesting Steve's thoughts and suggestions and perspectives on, on this issue that's very much uh, in the minds of especially those in the cattle industry right now as members of Congress take a look at the situation. Stay with us. Coming up next, we'll get reaction from the biofuels industry to the big Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers disappointing decision for the biofuels industry, but they'll point out it's not all bad. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 
Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. The much-anticipated Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers did not go the way the biofuels industry had hoped. But it's not all bad news either. Let's talk about it with Troy Bradenkamp, Senior Vice President, Government and Public Affairs for the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, thanks for joining us. First of all, how do you how do you break down this ruling and pluses, minuses from a biofuels perspective? What's your analysis? Hey, Mike, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, You you know, we're obviously disappointed. Uh, You know, the Supreme Court cited against us on, I guess, what we would call a technical issue, the definition of extension. You know, so now it means that a small uh, refinery can apply for an exemption at any time. I think it's important to point out, though, that that it is going to be, there's going to be a more stringent threshold to grant those exemptions moving forward. Um, as the other two parts of that Tenth Circuit decision were not challenged by the Supreme Court. So, so there are two very good parts still in place, and we plan to make sure the EPA uh, sticks to those. Were you surprised at the announcement? I know you were disappointed, but were you surprised the Supreme Court ruled this way? Well, we were surprised. I thought we made a really good case. Uh, when you look at actually <laughs> extension, you would have to uh, think that um, it would require there to be something in place in order to be extended, just my layman's thoughts of that. Obviously, the Supreme Court looks at things a little differently, um, and, and so we were disappointed um, and a little bit surprised. Um, we were actually surprised to hear that the Supreme Court called for the case to begin with, uh, because it was a unanimous decision out of the Tenth Circuit. So right off the bat, uh, back a year and a half ago, we were, you know, somewhat uh, surprised they actually took the case. So, so there was something there that they wanted to take a look at. Now we know, and we'll move on from here. I guess that's why I'm not totally, totally surprised. I was concerned and, and thought something like this might be coming just in the fact, as you said, that they took the case. So they must have yep. seen something there that led them to do that, which kind of made you think this could be this is the type of ruling that could be coming. Yeah, it, it was a weird thing. Like I said, we had a unanimous decision coming out of the Tenth Circuit. Usually, when there's a unanimous decision at the circuit court level, the Supreme Court doesn't typically do anything with those. So the fact that they brought the case or or they wanted to hear this one component of that case you know, told us there was something they wanted to make a ruling on. And clearly they did want to at least define what extension was. And that obviously either, depending on how you look at it, puts a limitation either on the government or actually gives the government a little more latitude uh, to actually um, take in an application now from a small refinery at any time. Uh, but we again, Mike. I, I think it's important to point out to everyone uh, that the two of the three pillars remain in place from that Tenth Circuit. That is an EPA analysis of hardship that is limiting them to look at just what is being caused from an RFS perspective. 
Um, that's in there, and that's going to be a pretty high threshold. The other half of that is that the, EA, that the EPA must reconcile any future exemptions awarded by that agency um, with the fact that they've already taken the position that refineries of all sizes are able to pass RFS compliance costs on in the price of their product. So, so for us, and in our opinion, that, that really means that it will be difficult, if not impossible, for refineries to establish or, or prove that the RFS has caused them hard moving forward if the EPA applies those other two pillars of that 10th Circuit decision, and that's what we're going to make sure that they do move forward. Yeah, I want to get more into that in just a moment. We're talking with Troy Bradenkamp with the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, what did you make of the uh, the breakdown in the voting on the Supreme Court among the justices and some of their uh, their opinions, their comments they made? I thought it was very interesting. You know, it was the first, I think it was the first case uh, since Justice Barrett was added to the court that there was a uh, a, a gender breakdown. Uh, it was uh, males versus females. Um, and it was also Justice Barrett's first dissension that, that, that she wrote and authored. So I, I think those are significant. Um, I don't know what else to read into that um, other than the fact that, that uh, men probably want things very well spelled out in, in law. And in this case, uh, extension wasn't well enough defined that they felt comfortable um, allowing that to stand the way that the 10th Circuit saw it. So, um, and there was interesting uh, perspectives from, from each case. Again, you, you know, there was a lot of point. And again, it really came down to that tech, technical aspect of, of extension what is extension if it had been better defined in statute? And we're finding that within that RFS. There's a couple things in that RFS that we hoped or, or should have probably had better defined. And in this case, they, they, they ruled in a certain way to make sure that in future cases, we're going to have to probably tighten up language whenever we can. All right. So let's look to the future. Moving forward now, and you were talking about this earlier, um, it really comes back now to to the to EPA making these decisions on these on these waivers moving forward. That's absolutely correct, Mike. You know, there's 70 pending uh, that were kind of in a holding pattern. Obviously, there could be more applications now since they can be submitted at any time uh, under the new definition of extension. So there will be a need for the EPA to to determine what the outcome of of these. Uh, existing and future uh, SRE applications are. However, uh, again, that 10th Circuit decision requires them to make sure that whatever hardship claim is being made by the uh, refinery, that it is limited just to the hardship caused by RFS um, regulatory burden. And then the second part of that, which almost sounds like doublespeak, but the second part of that decision says, and oh, by the way, EPA, you've already said that the refineries can recover those regulatory costs. So you have to explain why you are going to grant a new exemption when you've already said they can recover those costs. That to us is a super high hurdle that will now need to be crossed. And we'll make sure that the EPA applies that part of the ruling to future analysis uh, of these applications as the ones that are sitting on the table are still there and the new ones coming in all need to meet that new threshold. So that's that's where we're, we're hopeful moving forward. 
the Biden administration has indicated to us that they have every intent to to uh, to use that Tenth Circuit decision, and those two components of that Tenth Circuit decision still remain. So, so we're going to work with the Biden administration moving forward to make sure no uh, small refinery exemptions are handed out uh, nearly to the extent that they were in the previous administration. All right. So you see room and reason for optimism in working with EPA moving forward. But I also look at EPA and the administration and I see and hear some mixed signals when it comes to biofuels. Does that concern you? Well, there, there certainly has been some mixed mixed signals. Um, in this administration right now, everyone is talking about decarbonizing uh, the transportation sector. And, and so everyone is thinking about electric vehicles and the electric vehicle uh, uh, platform and how that might help with that goal to decarbonize. You know, one thing that we have done a pretty good job and, and will continue to do, Mike, and that is remind the Biden administration and Congress and EPA and, and anyone that will listen that biofuels today is a very good source of decarbonizing uh, energy uh, for the transportation sector. Uh, we have some great studies out there that show uh, ethanol, current ethanol made with uh, 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 the, the current corn production methods um, is almost 50% less in carbon footprint than conventional gasoline. So right there, if we're going to talk decarbonizing moving forward, we need to make sure that the Biden administration and anyone in, the, in D.C. Uh, from a policymaking perspective uh, perspective knows that and it's something that could be deployed rather quickly uh, so that's the issue that, that we're bringing to the administration each and every day um, and that's what makes us feel pretty good moving forward uh, with the two good pillars left in the 10th circuit decision plus the fact that our product is just far superior when it comes to uh, the ability to decarbonize and being deployed we feel pretty good about the future of biofuels for the transportation sector and finally, real quick, the, all this talk of these rumors about some kind of relief for the oil industry, and could that be through the RVO levels that are set by EPA, adjustments made there? Do you think that's what's going to happen? You know, we wouldn't want to see that happen. That would We would, that would, we would look at that as a mistake, Mike, uh, if they were to do something like that. You know, the renewable volume obligations moving forward, uh, we want to see something that shows a growth pattern or a growth opportunity. Um, we have proven over and over again that we're able to to produce a lot of biofuels uh, and meet the current demand uh, with the technology in agriculture and obviously at the plant level. So we really see no need to to reduce those numbers, and we don't see how a reduction in the RBOs moving forward would a be fair you know that rent market is a market and so that's what they need to realize and as long as they let the market be the market we should be okay and those prices will will fluctuate as needed that's the policy we want to see the administration put forward moving forward okay troy bradenkamp with the renewable fuels association stay with us this is aoa Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's get more perspective on the Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers. Joining us now is Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, your thoughts on the ruling. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be with you. Well, it's, it's certainly a disappointment. Uh, we, we certainly disagree with the majority opinion from the Supreme Court. But, uh, you know, we recognize that this EPA is going to take a much different approach to the small refiner exemption program under the renewable fuel standard. Not to mention, uh, you know, the, the EPA was rebuked in the Tenth Circuit for three on three points, and this Supreme Court decision only addressed one of them. So I, while I'm sure the, the refining community and the oil and gas industry is going to say, you know, the Supreme Court uh, said you must grant small refiner exemptions, it's absolutely not the case. And, and there's still a, a great deal of prudence that we expect uh, within EPA's uh, handling of the program to ensure that we're not kind of reopening the floodgates of small refiner exemptions as we saw under the, uh, the previous uh, EPA. Yeah, that's the key point, I think, the key takeaway. The Supreme Court didn't say to EPA, to EPA you have to grant these waivers, so it really falls back into uh, the EPA's lap and how they choose to go forward, and you're optimistic on how that this EPA will handle those? Well, I would say I'm hopeful. Optimistic might be a, a little strong. Uh, there's always competing pressures when it comes to implement implementation of the renewable fuel standard we're seeing it today right now there's a, a handful of east coast refiners that are arguing to the biden administration that the renewable fuel standard is creating a, an economic hardship for them and they're trying to to skirt their obligations under the program uh it was reported just a week or two ago that they're considering providing relief or exempting these refiners from their blending obligations which it would be a terrible precedent and it would be entirely contrary to the commitments that, that President Biden made as a candidate. He said he was going to support the renewable fuels industry. He saw uh, renewable fuels as a key component to his goals to reduce carbon and address climate change. Um, and he also criticized then-President Trump, rightfully so, on his handling of the small refiner exemption waivers. So you, you would certainly hope that this administration wouldn't, wouldn't take action that would be 100% contrary to both the commitments and the statement that the that the president made while a candidate but that that's the fact of the, the matter there is a great deal of pressure on on both sides the the rfs is working when allowed to uh to be implemented in a way that that is predictable and provides certainty it it has the ability to grow volumes of low carbon biofuels provide certainty to our industry to build out make the investments invest in the feedstock and so that's what we would hope that this administration would continue to do. They, they should see the renewable fuel standard as one of the few statutes on the books that allows for them to drive uh, demand and use of lower carbon fuels. And that's exactly what we're doing, and that's the, that's the point that we're trying to make to this EPA. Well, there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of momentum behind renewable diesel being a part of uh, reaching these climate goals. But yet the administration seems to be really pushing hard electric vehicles. Uh, do you see this as mixed signals? I think there's a little bit of mixed signals. I, I also think it's a, a little bit of over-enthusiasm for a single technology uh, that, that may not be necessary. And, and the, the, the conversations that we've been having with the administration is, listen, we, we recognize that there's a strong 
uh, motivation and momentum for electrification of the vehicle fleet. We understand that. What, what we would like them to understand is our fuel goes into sectors of the transportation economy that are, that are extremely hard to electrify or decarbonize through, through other means. Think heavy-duty, long-haul trucking, construction equipment, uh, uh, farm, farm machinery, as well as home heating. So what, we'll, what, what we would like the uh, administration to understand is we're working today to decarbonize those sectors of the, sectors of the economy. We recognize that they may view that they should be electrified. That may be the case, but that certainly isn't going to happen overnight. It's probably not going to happen within the next couple decades. So in the meantime, wouldn't it be prudent to support technologies that are providing decarbonization today and can save a lot of GHG emissions while they're, they're working to get their preferred uh, technology deployed? Finally, RVO levels. There's some thought that the administration will, EPA will adjust those to grant that uh, relief to the oil industry. What are you expecting there? Well, we're expecting, now that the Supreme Court has ruled, uh, we're anticipating that the EPA will submit their uh, renewable volume obligation proposal over to the Office of Management and Budget anytime here. That will kind of start the clock on the consideration that would allow for a 30-day interagency review process before they would put it out for notice and public comment. But we are certainly concerned about the, the, the arguments that refiners are making to this administration leading to lower volumes in that proposed rule. And keep in mind, this is the rule that was supposed to be finalized on November 30th of last year that was never completed before the Trump administration left office. So we're already tardy in, in providing those volume obligations and the certainty for our producers. And the, the idea that they would reduce those volumes to kowtow to a couple uh, refiners would, would really be a, a, a significant step in the wrong direction. And w this is the first opportunity for the Biden administration to demonstrate, are we on board with biofuels and agriculture as a, as a solution to our climate problems or not? So we're, we're certainly hopeful. We're making the case that this is our uh, first and, and best opportunity to demonstrate their commitment to agriculture and to biofuels in terms of uh, higher volumes to, to, to lower carbon. Yeah, I know from a biodiesel perspective, you felt they were too low for your industry already, so to lower them more would be very disappointing. Kurt, thanks a lot. We appreciate your thoughts and perspective on all this. Thank you. Always glad to be with you. Thanks, Mike. All right, that is Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. So while the Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers was disappointing for the biofuels industry, it's not all bad news. And um, much of the, uh, uh, the decision-making process will stay in, intact with the EPA, and uh, we'll see how they handle it, how this EPA handles the requests they get moving forward. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.